0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Texture, the smartphone app that brings the best magazines on the newsstands right to your pocket. Now, Texture is offering listeners a free trial when you go to texture.com happened. So That Happened is also sponsored by ZipRecruiter.com, where you can post your offers to over 100 job sites with just one click. Now's your chance to try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com happened and get the edge on your competition today. This podcast contains explicit language. So That Happened. This week... President Barack Obama picked Judge Merrick Garland to fill Antonin Scalia's vacant seat on the Supreme Court. Naturally, his pick has touched off another round of politicking between the White House and the Senate Republicans who have vowed to not consider a Supreme Court nominee. But more to the point, who is Merrick Garland and why? Answers are coming. Meanwhile, is the Democratic Party still the party of the working class, the little guy? Our guest, author and journalist Thomas Frank, says this is not the case, and he's written a new book titled, Listen Liberal or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People that details this intensely. He joins us to talk about it. Finally, our pal, Wisconsin Representative Reed Ribble, is back with us talking about Donald Trump, government reform, and his plans to travel to Cuba with President Obama. He'll talk about how after 60 years of isolation and embargo, it's time for a change of course with the island nation. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Christian Farias, and Samantha Lockman. Don't worry, we will also bring you up to speed on the 2016 races. In fact, that's what's happening first. Hello, America. Welcome once again to So That Happened, your podcast about the stuff that happened in politics. This week, that is going to probably ruin our lives and make us all feel sad and alone. I'm Jason Lincolns. I'm the editor of Eat the Press. And I'm joined today by two of my esteemed colleagues. To my left is Arthur Delaney. Hi. And to my right is Samantha, a.k.a. Sam Lachman. Nice. Hi. How's it going? It's going, you know, pretty, pretty great. Pretty great. To begin with, this past week was the second Super Tuesday. It probably was really the third Super Tuesday, so I don't know where we are in the Fast and Furious franchise. Two Super, two Tuesday. (laughs) But I think we're actually at the Tokyo Drift. I'm not entirely sure. But it was, once again, another Super Tuesday uh, filled with winners and losers. Uh, Let's start with the Democrats. Uh, This was a night where I think a lot of people on the Bernie Sanders camp thought history might repeat itself in Michigan. The uh, contest, especially in Illinois, seemed to be presenting itself as the same sort of race that Michigan was, one in which the pollsters didn't quite capture what was going on, uh, one in which the message of um, economic inequality and uh, manufacturing jobs, same with Ohio, too, not, not just Illinois, but Ohio, mm-hmm. uh, and a potential big upset didn't pan out, though.
2: I think Ohio is a huge win for Clinton. It wasn't even, I mean, Illinois was, uh, he lost by, like, a couple of points. That was closer. But for her to win Ohio, and I have the exit polls um, in front of me, and she just did a lot better among white voters. Like, she clearly she blew him out with black voters, as she usually does. But she also did really well among uh, white voters. And when you dig down into the numbers there, there's, like, a lot that's really encouraging for her campaign. And I think her campaign, even before Tuesday, was, like, setting expectations, as they tend to do. But they really thought that they might lose Ohio and Illinois. So it's, it's huge for them that they, that they were able to, to win both of
3: those. The HuffPost pollster poll eating machine, <laughs> which combines all the polls together and then uses an algorithm to create one big poll. That you can masticate. Don't, don't say that word. <laughs> Any, anyway, it showed that Sanders was really close, like almost within the margin of error.
2: In uh, Illinois in in uh, Ohio in Ohio yeah 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 you're right but no yeah
3: he that was it was like called pretty early yeah. Hillary wins she was, so she was like she totally won on Tuesday.
1: She totally won. It's amazing how things can turn on a dime, and how this race might be so much feeling so much different today. If Sanders had pulled off those wins, we'd be talking about yep. uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign in in trouble, uh, uh, closing the delegate gap. Instead, we have uh, Joel Benenson, who is Hillary Clinton's pollster talking to Greg Sargent in the Washington Post, saying that really this race is over, uh, that while they will concede that there may be states going forward that Sanders will perform in, he feels that right now the race is done, the delegate race is all but decided. I think Sanders would have to claim an enormous amount percentage of the remaining delegates. It's like over 60% of
2: yeah, the which, remaining ones.
1: Yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting flip to where Hillary Clinton found herself in 2008, Now, when Hillary Clinton found herself in that position in 2008, they still mounted a very desperate campaign to uh, win over superdelegates. And I understand that that's something that that is now really key to Sanders' future hopes.
2: And it's interesting the the uh, something you're hearing a number from the Clinton campaign a lot today is that Obama's biggest ever lead among pledge delegates not superdelegates against Clinton was like 150 something and now Clinton has an over 300 delegate lead against Sanders so yeah. Sam
3: so. Sam Lachman what should Sanders do now just keep campaigning hang around in case <laughs> there's a recession or continue to push and prod Hillary in well, a leftward policy direction
2: he's gonna have another I mean they're already even the Clinton campaign has conceded this um, that the next two or three weeks, he's going to have a lot of really good races. Like, he's plausibly going to win, like, the next however many number of races it is because there are smaller caucus states. There are, like, really liberal ones like Washington. There's a lot of states where he could do really well. It's just that they send way fewer delegates to the convention than these big wins that Clinton has had. So it doesn't, like, the math doesn't add up. But he's still, in terms of perception, like, he still can do really well in the next few weeks. So It's,
1: again, a mirror image of 2008. There was a point in the race where Clinton did rattle off a bunch of wins, yeah. and it was hard to keep reminding people that they weren't enough to win.
2: If I'm him, like I stay in and try to force the Democratic Party to be more progressive at the convention, and like use my delegates as leverage for that. So for that, for for him, it makes sense to do that, and that's what I'd want him to do if I was his supporter too.
3: Even though presumably the conventional wisdom will be immune to his appearance of momentum, yeah. because people are now counting delegates, yeah so scrupulously
2: (laughs) at long last. Um, well, it's just ironic for him. Like there was these stories that he's trying to reach out to superdelegates and it's ironic for him to be doing that when for so long they argued that superdelegates shouldn't decide the democratic primary, that they should have less influence. So it's funny to see him going for that kind of strategy. Sanders
1: supporters really insulted superdelegates for like a solid month. Yeah, And, uh, now they got to go hat in hand. It's Kind of
2: weird. Oh, uh, yeah,
1: on
3: Saturday Night Live, fake Bernie Sanders, <laughs> played by Larry Davidson, then what is a superdelegate? <laughs> and,
1: uh, you know,
3: they didn't, you know, Saturday Night Live didn't explain, and so I still don't know. Would you
1: like me to explain? <laughs> yes. Superdelegates? Okay, briefly, I've written pieces about superdelegates before, and I encourage people to go read them, but the back of the cereal box explanation of superdelegates is they are essentially party grandees, elected officials uh, in the House and Senate, uh, and people who occupy special places in the Democratic. Establishment. The idea is is that all those people wanted to have special privileges at the convention, and so they created this idea of a super delegate that would allow these people to, you know, get a hotel room and be on the convention floor and participate in all the grandeur and majesty of the of the of the convention. Now, it wasn't really until the Obama Clinton election in two thousand eight that they became suddenly the focus of people who might decide the race. Most superdelegates uh, would much 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 prefer that they not be the focus of attention because there is something inherently anti-democratic about their position the idea that they could be called upon to throw the race hither and yon despite the way the voters have uh, have, have picked their nominee that that bothers them They either usually come out really early and support a candidate that they're always going to support, or they sit and chill and wait for consensus to come in from the voters, and then they go with consensus. That's really what happened in the 2008 election. Late-breaking superdelegates, despite Clinton's entreaties, all broke to Obama because they saw the emerging consensus and didn't want to mess mess it up. It's weird. And wait, that they're, they're
3: they're chosen because they got a little like Dakota ring with their Cheerios. No, they're
1: literally they're literally the Democratic members of the House, the Democratic members of the Senate, specially appointed grandees from the DNC, and, and a collection of other sorts. There's a okay. there's a there's a sort of young Democrats group that's like a college group. They're national. Uh, their, their national team gets one half a superdelegate. Oh, this is
3: dreadful stuff. It's
1: really <laughs> dreadful. In 2008, it was the focus of a big Huffington Post story uh, that can, that alleged that Haim Saban, a huge Hillary Clinton supporter, had attempted to buy that half superdelegate oh, for her. This and is was, awful. Yeah, so it gets... It, the potential is hugely gross. Superdelegates are trash. The Democratic Party should throw them in the bin. So that's superdelegates.
3: Okay. Maybe
2: Sanders could you know, raise up a whole shit, storm about he superdelegates at the convention. He
3: could have a political revolution of the
1: superdelegates. <laughs> right. There's got to be a better way to get elected officials and people the DNC deems to be VIPs to the convention without also giving them voting privileges. It's not something that Republicans do. And the Republicans should expect to be probably more in favor of just handing out weird privileges to their party backers. But no, it's the Democrats. It's garbage. Democrats should get rid of it. Let's, uh, shall we move on to the Republican race? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, nice transition. So, yeah, great, no problem.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, um,
1: obviously, the big loser of the night was, drum roll, Marco Rubio. Oh, he, such losing. He, he lost in. He won his hometown of Miami. Terrific. And that's it. Terrific. Yeah, he won Miami, Puerto Rico, the Twin Cities, DC. DC. (laughs) It was a really odd collection, a little quilt of Rubio support across America. Northern Virginia. Who knows where else we might have won. (laughs) What was the problem with our pal Marco Rubio?
2: He was like everyone's second choice, but not their first choice. He didn't make a compelling enough case to people of why he actually should be the nominee. And I sort of would forget about him at times. I like never knew what his campaign his campaign was doing. It was so hollow. There wasn't, you know. He, he sort of echoed Donald Trump
3: on several things at different times. Like, uh, yeah, we're going to shut down some mosques. Yeah. And, and shut cafes down too. It, internet, Why not?
1: internet sites. Yeah. He, he criticized President Obama for going to a mosque, which is something I was like, wow, that's, that's crazy. His most defining
3: characteristic at times seems to be the fact that he'd participated in the big Senate immigration bill, which isn't a characteristic because he was just trying to get away from that.
1: Yeah, I know. It's very, cr- very hollow. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, it, there's, no, there's nothing more hollow than the fact that the man making the most strident denunciations of Trump University is a guy who really went to the mattresses for Corinthian colleges. Yeah. A uh, similar scammy outfit that, that deserves to be like superdelegates thrown into the sun and forgotten about forever. He was the best looking <laughs> candidate. Let's face it. Was who that does, literally who does, what it was?
2: Who does Marco Rubio endorse now is something I was wondering about.
1: This is the big question, and this is really the big question of everybody. Like and, what and is he Can doing? he control the delegates, or do they have superpowers? Okay, it's the whole complicated their, thing. their their rules, and we'll get into those in a future podcast because I'm not prepared to talk about that today. But <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be really interesting for all these people we're talking about from from politicians to pundits who have sort of declared themselves in open hostility to Donald Trump and who have said they would never support Donald Trump to see what happens now. Uh, because the tidal forces of party politics brings everyone into a great coalescing around the nominee. If you're Reince Priebus, you probably hear this talk of contested convention, and you think, I'm going to stop that. I'm going to put that down. That's there bad. won't be one, because he's a careerist himself, and his career is depending on delivering a convention and not spawning an independent run. Rubio may have, Rubio, the thought of him endorsing Donald Trump after everything he said about Donald Trump is implausible implausible to me but he's not ruling it out of course not so Uh, wimpy all right well sorry (laughs) sad (laughs) sad Sad. (laughs) the the good news is that maybe this will be the last election for america (laughs) cool thanks guys uh we will be right back we have a really good show we're gonna talk about the supreme court justice we have really cool interviews and so stick around we will be right back Hey, everyone. Thanks to pizza, we're all binge eating. Thanks to Netflix, we're all binge watching. And thanks to the NCAA tournament, we're all binging on office bracket pools in the hopes that your favorite team, like, say, the Virginia Cavaliers, win. But now with Texture, you can start binge reading. Trust me, this is about to be a thing. When it comes to magazines, you know what you like. And with Texture, you can get all the magazines you want in one super convenient place, your smartphone. Texture is completely reimagined magazines giving you the articles and stories you really want all in one place plus interactive features videos and...
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance.
1: Texture offers unlimited access to all of your favorite magazines for less than the price of three magazines at the grocery store. You can browse hundreds of them at your leisure and cherry pick the articles that interest you the most. And what's more, Texture offers a lot of cool features that let you go deeper. I don't just read Entertainment Weekly or Bloomberg Business Week. The Texture editorial team provides me a full supply of recommended stories every day. Plus, their carefully curated collections let me dive down deeper into the topics I want to follow hey it's environmentally friendly it's shareable with your whole family and it will help prevent that pile of back issues on your nightstand from growing to unimaginable heights and the best part texture is offering listeners a free trial right now when you go to texture.com happened you'll gain unrestricted access to the world's best magazines from back issues to the ones on newsstands today so stop wasting time, paper, and money. And get Texture for free right now when you go to texture.com slash happened. And we're back. Uh, this is Jason. I'm joined in the studio by Zach Carter. Hey, everybody. And our guest today uh, first sort of burst onto the political scene with his best-selling book, what's the matter with Kansas? And in the intervening years, the phrase, what's the matter with, could come to be applied to just about anything. And so he has a new book out called Listen, Liberal, or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People? And it's even better. So we're welcoming Thomas Frank, author, philanthropist, raconteur, to our show. Thomas, welcome to So That Happened.
4: Hey, how are you guys?
5: We're doing well. I I think it's a great book, um, and I think it's particularly interesting to have it coming out um, during the presidential primary. Um, I think a lot of Democrats right now are starting to think pretty hard about President Barack Obama's legacy. Uh, And your book is pretty critical of Obama, but you suggest that the real problems for the Democratic Party go back a lot further. So just what went wrong, and where did things go off the rails?
4: Well, they they, they go off the rails, first of all, you have to say, from the perspective of, of our current situation. And, and specifically from the, the issue of inequality, which is just completely, you know, galloping away out of control now, you know. Uh, and how did they, you know, how did how how is this possible when you've got this, uh, Demo- not not just a democratic president, but remember, I mean, this is a, a man that so many people thought was a kind of, uh, you know, extreme left winger just a few years ago, but it's not. Of course, it's not just Barack Obama. There's many other Democrats, Bill Clinton was president for eight years in there. And uh, it, goes, it goes way back in the Democratic Party. Uh, and the, 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 or, I mean, what I'm describing in the book goes way back in the Democratic Party. And I'm going to say it in a really simple way, and that is that at some point they decided they weren't all that interested in the concerns of working people anymore, and what they were interested in instead were the concerns of the professional class, people with advanced degrees, people at the you know, very top of, of uh, our uh, sort of economic society and
5: and that was a very different sort of perspective than you saw of, say under FDR in the 1930s.
4: Absolutely. Yeah, this is so when uh, you know a long time ago before you and I were around, the Democratic Party was very or, I mean if 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 what we read in books is true, <laughs> the Democratic <laughs> Party was you know they they were a very different beast uh with the, under Roosevelt and Truman and uh and uh, and Johnson and Kennedy, and even going all the way back to someone like William Jennings Bryan in the 1890s, you know, this is a party that really forthrightly identified itself with um, the middle class, the common man, you know, all these terms that people used to use, working people, that sort of thing. And they still use a lot of that language today. But uh, there, there came a time in the 1970s when the party basically decided that they didn't want to be that party anymore. They wanted to be something different. Uh, and they uh, basically removed organized labor from its uh, position of, of power. Organized labor used to be a very big deal within the Democratic Party. I mean, they still are to some degree, but not anything like what they used to be. I mean, It used to be their political party.
1: You know, that's, that was one of the more interesting parts of the book. To me, uh, was the way you describe how the radical left, your late hippie, post hippie, your 1960s counterculture, the, the people who we sort of now associate largely with liberalism, they really began the Democratic Party's rejection of unions. What, uh, what was their critique of unions at the time that forced them to reject them?
4: It, was, it, was the, it was, came out of the 60s, and it had to do with, with two things. One was, the main one was Vietnam. Uh, the Vietnam War was really uh, tearing this country apart, you know, and there were riots at the Democratic Convention in 1968. And uh, organized labor had been really, uh, they had stood by uh, Johnson in the Vietnam War, and there were, I mean, uh, uh, union members were often uh, very uh, supportive of, I mean, there's a very famous incident where you had uh, a, a hard hat riot in New York City with the with, uh, uh, construction workers rioting in favor of the Vietnam war. <laughs> you know, and and this was you know this is the age of the uh, uh, there was a whole stereotype of what working class people were like, uh who they were and it was a really ugly stereotype. You remember all in the family, right? Uh, right. Archie Bunker. And there's and there's many other iterations of it, but yeah, it the people that we think of as 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 liberals today basically yeah, they they came together to kick these uh, other guys out of the party. And you know, I'm not unsympathetic to, to their point of view. In the in the late 60s and early 70s, the Vietnam War was a, a horrible, horrible thing.
0: And organized
4: labor was really, uh, you know, fossilized and slow-moving and very, very white. You know, there, there were a lot of things wrong. But the problem with tossing out that perspective from a left party, from a party of the left, getting rid of that perspective means that you automatically, you're not going to be very uh, concerned about inequality. Okay. Mm-hmm. Think about the, kind of, the liberals that you just described, who, uh, you know, who, the ones who, who prevailed and took over the party in the early 1970s. The, one of the, the most interesting things about the 60s, and the you know, sort of radicals of the 60s, is that they were all, or mainly, from the upper middle class. Mm-hmm. And they were defined by having gone to college. So they were a distinctly a, a class group, in addition to being a left wing group. They were also from a particular social class, and that's Bill Clinton's group, you know.
5: Yeah, but but there is sort of an ongoing, I think, as we evaluate the Obama presidency, there's a, a, an ongoing reevaluation of the Bill Clinton presidency, which I think most Democrats were pretty psyched about in the 1990s. Um, but uh, I mean, I think the most the, the critique most people are familiar with is the feminist critique. I mean, I think the Monica Lewinsky stuff looks a lot worse to contemporary feminism than uh, the Democratic Party made it look in the '90s. But you focus on his domestic policy agenda.
4: God, yes, yes. I decided when I was so I I spent a lot of the book writing about Bill Clinton, and I decided uh, early on that I would not focus on uh, his sex scandals except for as how they how they how they uh, intrude on policy, which they did in a big way. And I also would not. I would not read any of the right-wing scandal material about him. I was not interested in Vince Foster. I was not interested in Whitewater. None of that. If we just look at Bill Clinton for what he actually did, uh, you know, the picture is pretty compelling by itself. And by the way, I mean, if you, if you read these books from the 1990s, and the things that we, some of the things that we think are so horrible today, like the 94 crime bill, which was a terrible thing, uh, you know, it's a draconian law that, uh, you know, they built prisons all over America, started locking people up, doing away with parole. You're able to try children as adults. Uh, they increased the number of federal death penalties from three to 60. I mean, all of these terrible things. And, but at the time, I, I, rem- I remember it at the time, and it made me angry at the time. At the time, the only aspect of it that was debated in public at all was this thing they called midnight basketball. Do you
1: guys remember this? Yeah, I remember <laughs> midnight basketball.
4: It was, like, totally, totally <clears throat> insignificant, you
1: know? <laughs> it was like, you look- it's the only time the poor can play basketball is after midnight.
4: <laughs> <laughs> it, was, yeah, it was ridiculous. But but it was not, you know, it, this bill, like, changed the face of this country, you know? It, this This bill was, like, sentencing... You know, hundreds of thousands of people to prison for years and years and years, and and all we could talk about was midnight basketball. It was it was weird. It was a strange time. But you go back and read the the, the books about the period, and they brush it off too. They're like, hey, look, you know, he got a big law passed through Congress. What an achievement. Uh, right. it, it's <laughs> it's just funny how our perspective on him you know, and you go back and read the biographies of him and the, the, you know, the campaign books and your perspective on it is so different from, from the present that, you know, in the our, our present of black lives matter and stuff like that. You go back and look at what he did. And it's like, you, you can't believe the way uh, the histories were written back then.
1: So, uh, you know, I'm thinking about the crime bill. I'm thinking about the welfare reform bill. I'm thinking about commodity futures, modernization, modernization act. And I'm, I have a theory for why the Democrats are maybe a little bit reluctant to bring this stuff up. I think that maybe they figured it was all going to stand the test of time until the financial crash happened and those bulwarks they had built into the system all failed. But what is your theory? Why don't they why don't they acknowledge this stuff as a party? I mean, at least the Republicans sort of reckoned with a little bit of their failings in that famous RNC autopsy. They didn't deal with it, of course, but there was at least part of that party that was willing to reckon with it. There's no such thing on the Democrat side.
4: No, they, they, it's that's because the I mean the Clinton faction is still firmly in control of the party this is This is something that you, you could see coming at the time in the in the late nineties. I think the Clintons were going to hang on to this party for a long time now I thought i I'll, I'll tell you something when Barack Obama ran in two thousand and eight that's one of the reasons I was such a strong supporter of him at the time was because I thought he would um purge the Clinton element from the party <laughs> <laughs> he, did, he, I know, he did exactly the opposite it's like it it was, but that's that's one of the reasons that I that I that I liked him so much on the campaign trail in two thousand and eight. Oh well, but no, the Look, the, the Democratic Party is defined by this historical need to make this man look good, and they will also be defined by the need to make Barack Obama look good. And people, you know, want to believe that Barack Obama was a great president, and they wanted to they want to believe that Bill Clinton was a great president, and they're willing to countenance or to believe all sorts of other stuff. Silly, silly things, in order to uh, you know to, to to make those beliefs those beliefs uh, you know tenable.
5: So uh, one of the more interesting rhetorical maneuvers that you uh, you talk about in your book is is this this rhetoric of education, which goes back to the Clinton years and really before the Clinton years. You, you talk about some of I think the McGovern Commission um, the way they use it. I mean, whenever jobs in the economy come up now and someone points out education as a solution, I sort of roll my eyes because, you know, no matter how many PhDs we have, somebody's still got to clean the toilets. Um, yeah.
6: But it's it
4: always worse than that. I have a PhD. <laughs> I, I was part of a, a, you know, a whole generation of, 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 of guys getting, uh, you know, history PhDs, and we couldn't get jobs, you know, <laughs> teaching history, you know. It's just not, it, but that was, that was also that was the Clinton years. Clinton was the great exponent of that of that philosophy and that idea that everything could be solved through education and not just uh, you know every economics. So, like you have you know the industrialized town in Ohio, let's say. Well, well, what, what's what's the answer to their problems? You know that everybody's nobody everybody has a job. Uh, you know, poverty is out of control. The answer, you know, according to Clinton, is it's just so obvious. Everybody has to go back to school and they have to get better skills and they have to be able to compete, right? Because Globalism, you know, Clinton loved this this word. Globalization is this unstoppable thing. It's it's like God Himself is is uh, putting those people in Ohio in competition with uh, workers in Mexico, and so they have to have you know some kind of different skill in order to uh, in order to survive in the future. And you know, it's 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 false on so many levels, but. It rang true for Clinton. I don't think Clinton was being uh, like uh, morally uh, immoral or dishonest about it when he said it. I think he really believed this stuff about education, uh, and the reason he believed it is because education did play that role for him and for his uh, generation of of liberals. Right, Clinton was plucked from, you know. Arkansas, Hot Springs, Arkansas, by Georgetown University, and then uh, he became a Rhodes Scholar, and then you know went to Yale Law School, and that is his. That is what made him. That's what formed him as a person was his educational experience. And you can say the same thing about Barack Obama. Again, plucked from obscurity by what Columbia, then he went to Harvard Law School, was editor of the Harvard Law Review. This is a very common biography when you start when when you start looking over the uh, our modern day democratic leaders. Um, you know, they all go to these, uh, or sometime went to these, you know, extremely prestigious uh, educational institutions, and it made their lives.
1: You talk in the book about how FDR's cabinet was actually cut from a different cloth; they're more insurgent type of intellectuals. I, you talk a lot in the book about this concept of meritocracy, this idea that once you become so ingrained with the sort of information class, the, the 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 professional class, suddenly you can't see outside that that. Uh, that Plato's cave you've you've wrapped yourself in. My favorite example of the way the meritocracy works that I always cite has been... Uh, Michael Bloomberg appointing Hearst executive Kathy Black to run the New York State Public Schools, which is something that anyone with pedagogical training thought was crazy. But I'm afraid I have a new example to bring up now. Uh, Just this week, just this week, it was announced that Elizabeth Holmes, the CEO of Theranos, a a blood uh, medical equipment startup that has been cited for waste, fraud, abuse and potentially endangering people, is having a fundraiser with Chelsea Clinton for Hillary Clinton, could there could there be a more real world explication of their book's thesis?
4: No, no, that's that's a that's that's almost too perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I want to I want to go to that. You know?
1: That's what I was thinking.
4: <laughs> One of the problems with writing this book is I wanted to see this kind of thing in action, but you in order to see it, you have to give money and I'm you know as a journalist i will not I will not do that exactly that's the code so I went out to Martha's Vineyard to see these people in action, and I quickly discovered I couldn't see anything you know just as an average citizen you have to pay you have to plunk down a thousand dollars.
1: do you think that this uh election we're having right now is maybe a collision course between Retro-America and Metro-America? <laughs>
4: oh, God, not that again. <laughs> uh, it's a collision course between something. I mean, something awful, right? It's a, I mean, let's assume that... I wonder, I don't know what's going to happen today. I mean, anything, anything could happen. The Democratic uh, primaries are very interesting to me, but I think Trump has probably got the Republican nomination in the bag, which is scary. Uh, but there's also something, you know, the Democrats are... Uh, refusing to look at what's actually propelling this guy, you know he's he's uh, he's zany and bigoted and all this stuff in a million ways. But there's also something else there, which is this simmering resentment and anger about what has been done to you know Middle America. You know, if you once you get outside of these very prosperous and very liberal cities, I mean this country is falling apart, and Trump really speaks to those to the, to that anger in those people in a kind of a shocking way. Uh, and, you know, if you want to beat him, and I assume the Democrats want to beat this guy, they're going to have to uh, come up with an answer for that, you know. And unfortunately, if you watch Hillary Clinton's—Hillary uh, Clinton is, by the way, a perfect example of the kind of liberal I talk about, you know, the, the, the education, the belief in meritocracy uh, that's going to solve all things. And, of course, the, you know, uh, palling around with billionaires. And if you listen to Hillary Clinton talk, when she's not, like, trying to steal Bernie Sanders talking points and is actually speaking her own mind, she gravitates back to meritocracy just almost automatically. She says, you know, what's the big problem facing us in America today, Hillary Clinton? She'll say, it's that, you know, talented people can't rise to the top because there's barriers that stop them. And I will, you know, I will <laughs> overcome those barriers. And it's, it's very nice, and that, that is a good, a worthy concern and everything – that's not the problem we're having in America right now. And that's not going to stop Donald Trump.
5: Well, Thomas Frank, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a pleasure talking to you.
4: Hey, thank you guys for having me.
5: And we'll be right back.
1: Hey, guys, if you're a business owner, you know that you're only as good as the people you hire. But it can be so time consuming to find those gems, the kind of employees that will give you the edge. You're never going to succeed just posting your job offers in one place, but you and your staff can't lose valuable hours posting to dozens of job sites. Fortunately, ZipRecruiter is here to help cut through your burden, get the message out to job seekers, and ensure that you find the perfect hire. With just one click, you'll post your offer to hundreds of job sites. You'll be instantly matched to top candidates, and you'll watch brand new candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface in just 24 hours. Pretty soon, your hiring needs will be done and dusted. It's no wonder that over 400,000 companies trust and use ZipRecruiter. Tara Novotny has this to say about ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter has completely changed the way we evaluate and manage candidates. As a small business, we subscribe to the always-be-hiring approach to growth, and the tools available to us through our membership have made that so much simpler, easier, and faster. It's folks like Tara that have learned what a great service ZipRecruiter is, and you can try it right now for free. Try ZipRecruiter and get your perfect candidate before someone else snags them. Today, you can try ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com Happened. That's ZipRecruiter.com Happened. And we're back, and uh, we're moving on to a new discussion. Uh, President Barack Obama has made a decision on who will fill Judge Antonin Scalia's place on the Supreme Court. Of course, Republicans have other ideas, but first they will have to contend with the fact that a lot of them love the man he's nominated, Merrick Garland, a 60-something, white, Harvard-educated jurist Once again, keeping the hammer lock on Supreme Court vacancies confined solely to Harvard and Yale Law School graduates. Joining me here to talk about this and everything it means is Zach Carter. Hi, everybody. And joining us for the first time. Yay. Supreme Court and legal affairs guru for The Huffington Post, Christian Farias. Thank you. It's really great to have you here. Great to be here, too. All right. Let's just start from the beginning. Merrick Garland who is this guy? Because to my mind, he sounds like maybe some dude who was like played a minor role in like a, a shootout out in the old West or something.
7: Well, you may not be that far from that. He played a leading role back in the mid nineties when the Oklahoma city bombing occurred. He was one of the lead prosecutors in the case. He was deeply involved in that. So that's how you could say he rose to notoriety. But after that, of course uh, he received the nomination to the DC circuit here in Washington And that's what began a very prominent career, at least for many lawyers, just to sit in any court to be nominated by the president to anything. It's the pinnacle of nerddom. So if you get that, I mean, forget it. Lawyers die. Uh, for becoming a judge one day because it's a lifetime appointment and then they don't have to worry about clients or any of that other stuff. And the
5: D.C. Circuit Court is a pretty important court for for federal affairs, right? I mean, this is where a lot of regulatory disputes, a lot of disputes between different branches of the government are are, are heard.
7: Yep, that and also anything that has to do with the president's power, it's heard there. So this court has a lot of uh, kind of potential to uh, decide many important cases. Some of them reach the Supreme Court, some of them don't. But because a lot of agencies are involved, anything that the executive does gets challenged there or a lot of the stuff Mm -hmm. that the executive does. So for that reason, these judges do hold a lot of power. It's seen almost as a direct pipeline to the Supreme Court. Uh, You have Scalia himself. You have people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You have uh, other judges, many on the Supreme Court who have served on that court, so it kind of makes sense that Obama will pick this guy. Although, to be sure, you know, some of us are a little disappointed by the choice.
5: So well, you, 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 you wanted to be picked?
7: No, 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 no. You are a lawyer, right? No, kind of, yes. I'd rather hide that part of my resume. But uh, yes, uh, unfortunately, for many people who kind of observe the court and watch these things unfold and kind of see the way the Supreme Court has kind of issued some pretty awful decisions uh, in recent years, particularly uh, since... Sandra Day O'Connor, the pragmatist Mm -hmm. on the court, uh, decided to retire. At which point, Alito became uh, kind of the person who took her seat. Uh, At that point, we've been since that moment we've been held hostage as a country to this person known as Anthony Kennedy. Since (laughs) since since that moment, since that moment, uh, Anthony Kennedy just achieved this. he received this incredible amount of power because he's so undecided. He doesn't have kind of this judicial line that he follows. And a lot of people say that he kind of goes wherever the wind blows, or sometimes he goes with the liberal side of the court, sometimes with conservatives. And because of that, there's a lot of uncertainty. And he's conservative. He's, you know, a Catholic. He's a person who... uh, was a point about Ronald Reagan, and for that reason, and others, he is just very hard to predict. Well, okay, spot reaction
1: from yesterday's uh, announcement that Garland was joining the court. People said, well, this guy's a nice guy. He's an old guy. He's learned. He's empathetic, emotional, but that's just his personality. Legally, people talked about him being the blandest of the bland. People talked about him being not controversial. Deepen our understanding of what this guy is like. Is he the non-controversial pick everyone's saying to be? What does he have in his background that suggests where he might rule on certain things?
7: Well, yeah, he is non-controversial. He is very bland, as you say. Uh, He is the safest pick that Obama could have chosen. Uh, He is not expending any political points with this. I mean, a lot of people thought, well, it's his last year in office. He might as well just throw the craziest, most liberal candidate. He has nothing to lose. Uh, But... Uh, He wants to prove that he can uh, burn Republicans. He wants to prove (laughs) that he cannot be uh, just held hostage by them. And for that purpose, for that reason, he decided to nominate this very centrist candidate who has bipartisan support, who has been uh, part of both administrations. And as far as where he might rule on key issues, the thing with the D.C. Circuit, which is basically all his experience so far, despite this sort of power that it has. One thing that this court is kind of powerless about and it's kind of lame is that it doesn't decide a lot of the big issues that people really care about. Like, truly... Does the average citizen care about like regulatory things or like administrative I agencies? I do. I uh, do. I love that stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah that's right. <laughs> We're bent and determined yeah. to make
1: them care about it.
7: <laughs> yeah. So you know, so the average citizen doesn't doesn't look at that stuff so much. They care about immigration. They care about you know uh, free speech and and all Abortion, these. And Obamacare,
6: right? Obamacare,
7: you know? like all these things. That, oh my gosh, this is gonna affect my life for a really long time. But that court doesn't decide those things. So it's if it. If you say uh, Merrick Garland has no record on abortion, well, because those cases don't go to the D.C. Circuit, you know. Well, so, so for that reason, it's kind of in a wait and see period. We don't know where he's going to rule on some of those things.
5: So I, 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 you mentioned earlier that you know a lot of uh, of, of the D.C. Circuit uh, judges end up on the Supreme Court, and uh, you know I think a lot of judges on the D.C. Circuit also know that a lot of them end up on the Supreme Court, and so people in that position often. Sometimes try to play it really cool with their with their opinions and with their decisions because they don't want to look like they're too liberal or too conservative and then blow a shot at getting on the Supreme Court. If you look at it from a political standpoint, I mean, I think this really does box Republicans in. I don't think that many voters go out and vote based on who the Supreme Court nominees are. Sorry, Christian. I know it's a big part of your life. But I just don't think it motivates that many people to go out to the polls. So it's kind of a it's kind of a play for, like, the hearts and minds of elite intellectuals. And uh, and and this this is a, a way to make Republicans look awkward with that group of people.
1: Is America better off with the Supreme Court with firebrand, bold thinkers from either political persuasion or are we better off with the Supreme Court? That's
7: bland. I think America is best with a bland Supreme Court in the sense that (laughs) the Supreme Court shouldn't have to be deciding this many hot-button issues. Like, this term right now that we're in, there's just way too many crazy cases, and there is no legislation, there is no victories that Republicans can claim for themselves. So, in a way, they have clung to the courts. If there is one thing where Republicans were really effective in the 80s and part of the 90s, and then in the Bush era was appointing conservative judges. And with that, they secured a very strong judicial legacy that liberals were kind of behind the times with. They weren't quick to kind of catch up on. And because of packing the courts with conservative judges, you have now all these kind of crazy cases bubbling through the courts.
1: I have to say, I have to point out something. (laughs) Maybe you can respond to this, but Within hours, and I mean mere hours, really maybe 180 minutes after uh, Antonin Scalia had shuffled off this mortal coil. I'd say less, perhaps. Yeah, Republicans were saying it would be unfair for the president to to be the person to pick the Supreme Court justice. We're in an election year. The people deserve to have their voice heard. Now that he's picked a guy, and now that he's picked Merrick Garland specifically, Republicans are saying, we're going to not have hearings about Merrick Garland until the election is over, and if Hillary Clinton wins, we'll definitely confirm Merrick Garland. What happened to the people should decide who the next Supreme Court justice should be?
7: Yeah, we should know that only a few senators have come up with that line of reasoning. It makes absolutely no sense because, again... Uh, <laughs> if you're
1: corrupt, it makes a lot of sense, though.
7: Right. No, and, and, you know, if, if they truly hold true to their ideals and their argument, they should be able to not let Obama nominate or confirm anyone, including Mary Garland, all the way to the end. they got to hold to their guns. They cannot budge on that. And if they do, that means their, 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 their line of reasoning has no merit. Uh, it looks like that wall is cracking little by yeah. little, and we'll see what happens. But uh, I think Obama made this choice in good faith. I think he really thinks this guy is going to do a good job, that he has a future on the court, perhaps not a long time because he's not very young, but that he could be a force for good and that he could advance some perhaps liberal uh, perspectives on the court and, and nudge it towards the left because it's been at the center. And to the right for a very long time, close to thirty years. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think to
5: some extent liberals get this. I have have sort of like bought this idea that Obama is this super far left guy because the Republicans keep saying it all the time. But you know, there's a sense in which he does kind of like a lot of these these really centrist kind, oh, yeah, of, kind of kind of figures. Definitely. And even in the case of somebody like Merrick Garland, I mean, you were saying earlier, Anthony Kennedy is currently you know, the swing vote on the court. He's got all of this power. You I know, mean, with Scalia gone, I mean, even with the centrist. You know, a centrist type of character. Does does Kennedy get replaced by Merrick Garland in the swing vote? Like, how does how does the the court's ideological, you know, uh, shape shift?
7: Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, Anthony Kennedy now very likely is his role is very much diminished. There are some pending cases where he remains kind of the the key vote or key voice or the pivotal vote. He hates the term swing vote because it makes him sound like he cannot make up his mind. Uh, <laughs> he likes to call himself the pivotal vote, you know, but whatever that means, uh, that position of his, uh, It's no more if Merrick Garland makes it to the Supreme Court. Now it'll be either Garland or, some are saying, Justice Breyer, who also has a long history in government service. He has served on all three branches of government. He is very pragmatic. And in that sense, Breyer could be the one to kind of uh, carry the liberals, perhaps not to these watershed winds, but perhaps in a more center-left position, even farther to the left than the court has been in a very long time. All right. Well, we'll see how it goes. Maybe there will be some political opportunism.
1: Who knows? <laughs> what are the odds? In, in the Senate, Probably no. won't happen. <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot, Christian. Thanks a lot, Zach. And we shall be right back. Hey, guys. We'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here. To thank all of you. For tuning into the show and helping us to create an Inside the Beltway show for Beltway Outsiders and make it a reality. We love hearing from you. Your feedback has been such a tremendously good, positive influence on us every week. Now, you can help other people find out about this show that you're helping to build. If you are an iTunes user, please look for our show. Subscribe if you haven't. And use iTunes as widgets to rate our show and to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show, and we can keep building what we've got going together. So head on out to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and say hello to us and your fellow listeners. Thanks so much, guys. And now, here's something else that
4: happened.
1: And welcome back. Joining us once again, besides Arthur Delaney, who is here, is our good friend, Congressman Reed Ribble of Wisconsin, welcome, Congressman.
6: Hey, it's good to be with you guys.
1: So nice to talk to you again.
6: Yeah, it's fun. It's, I, I enjoy these conversations.
1: We do too, even though we don't always get to talk about things that we necessarily like. And to that end, I suppose we have to uh, talk about uh, the front runner for the GOP uh, right now. He um, dispatched Marco Rubio um, last night. And has left the cause of the hashtag Never Trump camp in the hands of Ted Cruz and John Kasich. Where do you see this going?
6: Well, I, I mean, I, I personally see it going to some type of contested convention. I could be wrong, but I don't. I don't know that anybody now is going to be able to get the delegates necessary to uh, go into the convention with the nominee nomination secured. That's what I think happens. But I, I could be wrong. I've been wrong. I've been wrong a bunch on this whole thing. So.
3: Um, oh, where what were you wrong about, Congressman? You were one of the first voices to say that Donald Trump was terrible.
6: I'm still right about that, by the way. Yeah, but but I've, I've been wrong. I, I I was hoping Scott Walker would do do well. Then I was hoping Marco Rubio would do well. But uh, Donald Trump has shown an uh, an uncanny ability to uh, gobble up media time. Uh, literally, I think I was reading a, a report in it might have been the Washington Post or New York Times recently where. They calculated the earned media value at something like 1.1 billion dollars. I mean, he's he's been on TV nonstop. Our bad. <laughs> yeah, it's your fault.
1: <laughs> when you guys sit around and talk about this in Congress, and you see the fact that Donald Trump is his rallies are always covered, and there's never been a camera at a Kasich rally or a Bush rally or a Rubio until he started insulting Donald Trump. Does that does that rub you guys the wrong way?
6: Well, I don't know that that necessarily rubbed us the wrong way. We're intrigued by the media's infatuation with the guy. I've never seen a, a, a circumstance where television acts like their are radio. I mean, he can just pick up the phone and call anybody at any time, and they pick up. And there's not another candidate on the planet. I mean, television is a visual art. I mean, you have to see people. But there's a picture of Donald Trump, and he's on the phone with them, and he's on there for 15 or 20 minutes at a clip.
1: Cable News has given him privileges that Hugo Chavez had to take by force.
6: It's been (laughs) unbelievable, but they're just so happy to have him. Apparently they believe that their listeners want to hear more uh, about Trump, and it might just be that they're waiting for the next outrageous statement that he's about to make. I don't know. I don't get it.
3: Congressman Ribble, a, a handful of your Republican colleagues, I think four House members, have endorsed the donald have you uh had any conversations with them
6: oh, on, on occasion because they 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 obviously my position on uh on the on the candidates well known around around the house here and so on occasion they'll come and they'll 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 poke me about this or that and how he how well he's doing and uh they believe there's an inevitability uh in his campaign i i think uh, chris christie and ben carson might agree with that um but uh, at, at the end of the day, um, we still have a lot of states that have a wait in. My home state of Wisconsin hasn't voted yet, and that's coming up on April 5th. And so I think we'll just have to wait and see how this plays out.
3: All right, Congressman Ribble, shifting gears, I wondered if you had any plans this weekend.
6: Well, um, uh, there is a, there is a uh, trip to Cuba that President Obama is taking uh, as part of his efforts to uh, uh, open up Cuba to U.S. markets and uh, to expose the uh, Cubans to more liberty and freedom, and uh, he's invited a, a bipartisan um, group of uh, members of Congress to go. And he extended an offer to me, and I've uh, chosen to accept that. And so I'll be uh, I'll be uh, down in Cuba over the weekend.
1: Are you optimistic that uh, an open Cuba will become, in time, a freer Cuba?
6: I, I, I am. I think that there are a couple of things. Once you expose them uh, to more uh, uh, openness, freedom, democracy, uh, commerce, um, that, that that becomes pretty appealing in and of itself. Uh, a more communistic approach, uh, particularly a, uh, an approach that has been as repressive as that one has been, um, really you have to hold a mirror up against it. And, and when they see the freedom of mobility that Americans have and their willingness to come and invest money uh, I think it's a natural thing that they're going to want not only our products and our services, and certainly uh, Wisconsin cheese and milk, but they're going to they're going to want uh, American-style freedom as well.
1: Opposition to opening uh, opening Cuba or lifting the embargo uh, sometimes comes across as more a part of a, a generic political tradition than it is about a you know a you know a, pol- you know, a, a, a forward-looking execution of a policy. Do you think that as time goes on, you're going to see the old tradition of just being sort of uh, reflexively opposed to lifting the embargo fade away, and are trips like this going to help move that needle?
6: I I think they will, and I think it's important. I think the president's actually doing something correct, and you guys are aware that I've had my disagreements with President Obama, um, but I actually think he's correct on this policy. Uh, We've had a posture that's now gone on six decades. And it hasn't actually worked. Uh, there's been no reparations. There hasn't been freedom. They still have political prisoners. Um, they still have human rights abuses. Uh, that all happened under the old policy. Uh, I don't think the president is necessarily wrong in saying maybe we can have a better effect on on Cuban government and and society by having a more open exchange of ideas.
3: Are you sure six decades is enough time to be sure that the embargo wasn't working?
6: I, I think so. I, uh, I, I would say to you that for the most part, the only ones that have been embargoed in this embargo has been the American worker because we haven't had a free transfer of goods. We've been able to sell some agriculture down there, but even that was restricted uh, to having to use out-of-U.S. banking. And um, so we've had we've kind of had this... Hodgepodge, potpourri of policy that uh, I think we might as well try a different policy and see where it goes.
3: What about Guantanamo Bay? The president wants to close it.
6: Yeah, I I think that's the wrong policy uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, First, he wants to close the naval base and he wants to close the prison. I oppose both of those positions. And and one of the reasons I oppose it is you have to think of things like the, the earthquake that happened in Port au Prince. Now, that, that Guantanamo Naval Base is about 175 nautical miles from Port-au-Prince. We were able to have medical help, food, water, and and emergency capacity by having our Navy so close in that region. That would go away if that base closes.
3: But I haven't, I haven't heard that as a reason for keeping the prison.
6: Uh, well, Okay, but I'm talking about the Naval Base, two separate things. On the prison, the real issue for me with the prison is not about whether we can safely house a terrorist in the U.S.? I believe we can. But the, the difference is, is that we cannot necessarily keep safe the families of the prison guards. Right now in Guantanamo, nobody knows who those soldiers are that are guarding those prisoners, including the inmate. However, in, if you bring them into Joliet, Illinois or some federal prison, the, 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 the family members of the guards are going to generally live in the area that that prison is. And we, we have a different level of risk that we're bringing and inviting into the country when it's not necessary.
1: Oh, well, that's something I've not heard before.
6: Yeah, that was new. That's why you talked to me.
1: All right. Shifting gears one more time. Uh, you've come on the show uh, a number of times, and you've been, you've been uh, generous in sharing uh, what you feel would be steps Congress can take to become a more— uh, agile or functional body, but you're not the only game in town. Uh, there are a lot of people who, who have their own ideas about what could improve governance here in here in Washington, DC. And so I wanted to just bounce, I wanted to bounce one of them off of you. Okay. So I know from past discussions that you're very camera averse. So you may have specific opinions on this, but C-SPAN, They have cameras pointed at Congress uh, all day when they're they're in session. And the argument for those cameras is that it's a novel uh, window into the workings of Congress and it provides some degree of transparency. But critics say that what C-SPAN has ended up doing is enabling more grandstanding, less congeniality, less negotiations and just more play acting for the cameras. What say you? Should C-SPAN withdraw from the congressional chambers.
6: No, they absolutely should not withdraw. The only time that the American people get to see real debate happening is when they when they turn on C-SPAN. And so by that, you're going to have some pandering to cameras. There's no doubt about it. But for the most part, and listen, I've been the speaker pro tempore, where i managed the, the, uh, the debate uh, from the, the uh, speaker's rostrum. There, there's a lot of give and take and movement back and forth and debate that goes on. In, in the normal process of, of bill advancement and legislative advancement that the American people actually get to see happen. And they also get to see the committees work. All, most of the committee hearings are on, on C-SPAN. And, I mean, there, there, there will always be the politician that wants to grandstand for C-SPAN. And that, that's up to them. But I believe that the American people are way smarter than what many politicians believe they are, and they know what pandering looks like.
3: But in a committee hearing, Congressman Ribble, you'll all you know, if you go to the from the beginning there will be a certain group of lawmakers at their desks. But then toward the end, you know, they'll leave and then some other people will show up and maybe even ask a question that had already been asked of the witnesses assembled. Like isn't that a total waste of time or or, or is it valuable?
6: Well it it it, it can be valuable in, in this regard. For example, during the course of any given day, I might have two or three hearings going on at the same time. And so you have staff in the hearings that you're not in trying to keep you informed as what's going on, and then you will well, you may move from one hearing to another so that you can be there for, for at least part of it, so that you can be engaged in the conversation, and debate, and whatever it is that you're trying to learn from the witnesses that are there or the expert testimony that you're hearing that might be taking place prior to a markup on a bill. And, and so it is possible that that happens, but generally speaking, that, that that particular circumstance that you just mentioned is less frequent than I think people are aware of.
1: All right, well, obviously uh, part, of, part of doing our job involves having C-SPAN at the ready. So there's the verdict. People who don't like C-SPAN, it stays. It stays. I think it
6: should stay. I think it should stay. Anything that makes government more transparent, even in its pandering, is still better for the American people than not.
1: That is a good way of putting it. Congressman Ribble, thanks for joining us. We look forward to having you back.
6: Good to be with you. Thanks, guys. All right, thanks.
1: So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. We are always watched over by our loving angel, Caitlin Boguki. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we were joined by author and journalist Thomas Frank, Wisconsin Representative Reed Ribble, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Christian Farias, and Samantha Lockman. This podcast was sponsored by Texture, the app that brings the best magazines on the newsstands right to your smartphone. We are also sponsored by ZipRecruiter, the one-click service that will get you the best hires before your competition can. So That Happened is available on iTunes at itunes.com slash Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to happened at huffingtonpost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already.